Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R, and we've got you for an hour of science now. We've got some great guests coming onto the show today. Catherine Sewell from La Trobe University will be in to talk about stroke and some of the mental health aspects that go with it. And we'll be speaking to James Rule from Museums Victoria about some amazing new exhibit they've got, which opens next Saturday. But in the studio with me is Dr. Ray. Good morning. Yeah, why don't I just turn on your microphone? See, it's public radio. Try that again. There good you go. Morning, I'm so Shane. used to not having people in the room. Uh, good to see you, pal. And Dr. Linden, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Great to see you. And we have Stacey on the line. Good morning, Stacey. Hello, my Einstein and Gogo friends. How are you? <laughs> Very good. And it's good to have you there on uh, on our Zoom. We'll get you back in the studio at some stage. That'd be nice. Yeah. Enough to see some people in real life. That'd be good. Now, we're going to start off with some news, folks. And, uh, Stacey, we might start with you while well, we've got a nice, stable internet connection. Sure. Let's let's roll with it. Um, so, Dr. Shane, I've got some infectious diseases news this week. Uh, it's not COVID, fortunately, uh, but two other viruses of public health importance that have each made headlines in recent weeks that I thought I'd mm. share with listeners. So, first up is poliomyelitis. So polio, just to recap, is a vaccine-preventable disease. We thankfully don't hear much about anymore. Um, It's transmitted through the ingestion of faecally contaminated food, water, or through direct contact with infected cases. And it can cause fever, headache, vomiting, um, stiff neck and limbs and things like that. However, the virus can also attack the nervous system. So in one in 200 infections, it can lead to neurological involvement and paralysis. And among people that have that paralytic form, mortality is quite high. Now, we don't hear much about polio really thanks to global efforts to eradicate the disease. Um, So this was really spearheaded in 1988 Um, through uh, coordinating vaccine delivery across the globe. Mm. And it's meant that most countries are now um, certified polio-free. There's two remaining countries with circulating wild-type poliovirus, and that's Afghanistan and Pakistan. But the reason that polio was in the news um, in the last couple of weeks is because there's been a new case detected um, in a three-year-old girl, unfortunately, in the uh, capital of Malawi in southern Africa. And uh, it represents the first detected polio case in Africa in more than five years. Wow. And the one case alone, yeah, it's, it's, um, that, this one case alone signals quite a setback in efforts to eradicate polio. So um, public health teams are now um, trying to figure out how broadly the virus may have spread uh, across Malawi or into neighbouring countries. So in terms of next steps, governments and partner agencies are are really intensifying their surveillance efforts to proactively look for other undetected cases in the region. Um, So they'll do this by testing people um, as well as uh, sewage or wastewater surveillance to look for the virus. And additionally, they've scheduled a mass polio vaccination program for children under five. So kids are most likely uh, to have that severe form of disease. Mm. Um, so that'll, that'll happen in Malawi and possibly across to other neighbouring countries such as Tanzania and Zambia and Mozambique. Yeah. So that, that was a bit of a setback uh, in the science news this week. Um, but the other disease that made headlines this week, which is a little bit closer to home, was Japanese encephalitis. Yeah, yeah. I heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I've, heard, um, I've heard the term used a lot and I haven't heard any explanation of what it does virtually at all. It was sort of like everyone's talking about it. It's like, do I need to worry about this? Do people actually need to worry about this? Or is this just the news agency saying, oh, we've got something else to talk about? Like, what's uh, what's the well, deal? Um, let me tell you then. <laughs> yep. So, um, the Japanese encephalitis uh, uh, is transmitted to humans through the bite of infected mosquitoes. So, it's commonly asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. So, again, fever, headache, vomiting. 
But in rare instances, so less than 1% of cases, it can cause neurological involvement resulting in encephalitis. So that's inflammation of the brain. It can lead to coma and transient or permanent neurological complications or death. So what happened uh, and and the reason that it's uh, bubbling up into the news headlines is that in the last couple of weeks, um, a Japanese encephalitis outbreak was detected in commercial piggeries along the New South Mm. Wales and Victorian border along the Murray River. Now, um, since since that was uh, identified, there are now 16 human cases that are either suspected or confirmed across New, uh, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia and Queensland. Um, now, Japanese encephalitis is commonly seen in South Asia and the Pacific Islands. Sporadic cases are sometimes observed at the northern tip of Queensland and the Torres Strait Islands. Um, but the case that was confirmed on Friday represents the first they've seen in more than 20 years. Uh, and Japanese encephalitis cases are not usually seen this far south in New South Wales mm. and Victoria. So um, it has been declared a, an uh, incident of national significance. So it's triggered a coordinated vaccination program for those most at risk. So those will be people that are um, uh, re- resident of these areas where the outbreaks in piggeries have been declared um, and uh, enhanced surveillance as well and, and some more coordinated public messaging. So in addition to the vaccine for people who are directly at risk, prevention efforts rest largely on avoiding mosquito bites. So these are simple measures that everyone can, can yeah. um, you know, use, you know, wearing long sleeve clothing, wearing, uh, applying mosquito repellent um, and minimising mosquito breeding sites around the home. Damn mosquitoes. <clears throat> yep. Thank Indeed. you, Stacey. Um, I'll be cancelling that riverboat cruise down the Murray. Uh, well, you know, no, but it's always, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's always a source I mean, it's bo- yeah. yeah, it's both quite alarming, I guess, in, in for the polio news, but also, mm. yeah, for Japanese encephalitis, but particularly concerning for those uh, individuals that are affected. Yeah, indeed. Dr. Ray, what do you got for us? Uh, Dr. Shane, um, I have... Uh, Rocks and pebbles and sand on an asteroid. So, as you as you may remember, the um, Hayabusa two mission, oh, yeah. which was the, uh, the 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 spacecraft that went out to the Ryuga asteroid and um, basically bombarded it. Yep, smacked and, it and grabbed, smacked and, and grabbed, smacked and grabbed and grabbed um, samples from the asteroid and then brought them back to Earth. And they arrived back on Earth about 2020. So this was a, a story in. Um, uh, nature that had actually come out and, and and there's been a series of stories about how they're looking at these samples and it's like 101 authors literally 101 like if you have 100 authors you throw the 101 on i figure just for the yep. you know sounds like dalmatians but yep. um they uh this is our carbonaceous or, or c-type asteroid it's the ones that have silicates and organic matter on them and and this was focused on they had about a five gram sample from the containers where they were asking this isn't even chemical analysis they went you know what the asteroid wasn't quite covered in what we thought. We thought it would just be regolith, which is mostly in that context, this really fine soil. But instead, when they landed, they found like sand and pebbles Mm. and and things that had different shapes and colors. So one of the first things I do before they do chemical analysis, and I thought, oh, that's interesting, is they're like, all right, we opened up the container and we got the thing. We've got the, 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 the asteroid sample. Well, they got to ask questions like, does it look like the thing we saw when we landed on video and our other sampling where we're on the asteroid? And I thought about that for a second. I'm like, oh, wow. You are taking a container, you're opening it up in an alien environment and assuming because you had the little mascot rover there that you actually got the thing you thought you got in the container. And you actually have to ask that question. And then you have to ask, all right, it looked like, this is what the rocks looked like when we put it in the container. When we take it out, does it look the same way? And I kind of went, oh, wow, these are, these are, like, I didn't even think about the scale of the questions you had to worry about. They actually even simulated in, in microgravity experiments the rock getting pushed in the container before they ever sent the, the mission up there. Just to try to think, is this what we're going to expect? Is this mm. what we're going to see? And, and so with a lot of very fine comparisons with the, a lot of the video measurements taken when the mascot rover, because they, they had a little uh, surface scout called mascot, um, on, on, on actually on the asteroid to just see if it compared. And, and they were looking at shape and size and 
they, their conclusion was, yes, for Site 1 and 2, the one where they didn't blow things up and where they did bombard it, the, the, the morphology, the sand, the color, the shape, all looks consistent with what we saw on the asteroid at the time, which is great because now they can do chemical analysis. But uh, it was also just interesting. It wasn't the surface they expected, which is why they've been so careful about, well, is this really what was meant to be in the container? Because we thought we'd have like what looks like fine moon soil, but instead got sand and pebbles. Mm. Yeah, it's so, cool uh, stuff. I think the more and more we uh, look at some of these objects, we are starting to expect the things that we didn't expect when we sent things there. So, you know, Pluto, yeah, much better than expected. You know, <laughs> sorry, but amazing stuff. Dr. Linden, what do you got for us? I have got a tired brain this week. I don't know about you. Just this week? Well, that's true. It's a, it's a culmination, isn't it? You know, it's been another rough, sad week, yeah. even before I heard Stacey's news about... Polio and Japanese encephalitis and space rocks not Sorry. Looking, looking like what we expect they're going to look like. So I kind of thought maybe this week we could just mentally take ourselves away to a different place or even a different time. So I'm wondering if maybe, maybe you could do this too if you want, Dr. Shane. You could think about a time in your past that made you feel pretty happy. Hey, I was listening to 80s music all the way in. There we go. Is that why you weren't listening to me on yeah. Radio Marinara? Yeah. You were Sorry. rocking out. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to wake myself up. <laughs> you know, for me, if I think about a time when I was happy in my childhood, you know, I'm eating red frogs by the pool, I'm listening to the Spice Girls on CD, maybe okay. I'm, I'm wearing a big straw hat with a gerbera <laughs> on it. I'm a 90s kid. What are you going to do? You're really painting a picture there. <laughs> It's making me feel lovely. A new research this week uh, published in the International Journal of Neuroscience from Chinese researchers has suggested that if you can think nostalgic thoughts or connect to nostalgic ideas, not only will it take you away from this sad reality that we're living in at the moment, but it might also reduce your pain. Hmm. Reduce your level of pain. So this study, I think, is an, an you know an iterative study. There were uh, other researchers that have looked at this in different parts of the world, but these guys took 34 right-handed women aged between 18 to 25. I'm not quite sure what the right-handedness has to do with things, but they exposed them to a series of pictures that uh, were considered that were considered nostalgic. Uh, either popping candy or you know school games or you know video games or something like that. And then they exposed their control group to non-nostalgic pictures of just other random stuff in life. And then they um, exposed them to a little bit of pain, so a heat source on the arm of increasing increasing pain. And they found that for low levels of pain, I think I'm talking, you know, stubbing your toe, mm-hmm. that kind of level of pain, a one-off thing as well, not yep. a chronic type of pain, but connecting with the nostalgic images actually helped reduce the pain. And they did some MRI analysis as well and showed that the because I guess nostalgia connects to lots of complicated parts in your brain, it connects you to your sense of self, but it's also memories and it also feels nice. So there's a reward aspect going on there. They found that a couple of parts of the brain behave differently when you are looking at these nostalgic images, which Mm. I don't know. I was quite happy to know that and to transport myself back to... Zig Zig R wearing lime green and orange and overalls and having a nice time. I think I'll do a follow-up study with pornography. Oh, gross. Hey, you know, it's distraction, right? They're talking about distraction. They are talking about, that's true. You know, there's heaps of ways to distract people, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. And, I mean, there are some people that said, oh, the case, like, the sample size is quite small and different cultures might have different outcomes here, but... I guess it's another layer of, yeah, meditation, positive thinking, mm. all these different aspects that can help you distract yourself from yeah. some pain. Just based on the study, if you're left-handed, does that mean you're screwed? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thinking, I am left-handed. Maybe it doesn't yeah, work for me. Yeah. But maybe it's because the, the structure of the brain is shaped slightly differently if you're left-handed. Maybe well, that's why they choose well, maybe, maybe the Well, maybe the pain they inflicted, if, I'm not sure of the details, of the paper was done on one arm. And yeah. they didn't want that to be conflicted by the fact I always hurt you on your right arm, but you're left-handed, so your response is different. So it's probably something yeah. just to standardize the, the results. But, you know, left-handed people, you know... They're, we're tough. They're special. They're they probably ass. didn't even feel it. Exactly. You know? <laughs> Give me more. More pain. <laughs> well, it's a pity it's not a study of chronic pain, because you know, well, that's, yeah, that's where true. the real issues are. Because you know, small, short-term pain, we, we're pretty good at. Yeah. Um, chronic pain, we are abysmal at. Yeah, so, exactly. You know, and if you've got chronic pain, imagining a time back when you didn't have chronic pain. It's really upsetting. Exactly. Yeah, so yes. it's interesting that, isn't it? If you did that study with chronic pain um, sufferers, it would actually probably make things worse. Yeah. Not better, because they would, you know, the anxiety levels and so forth and, and feelings of 
sadness, depression, etc. You know, yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. On that happy note, uh, we're going <laughs> <laughs> to take a break for some music, folks. And when we come back, we'll be talking about stroke with uh, Catherine Sewell from La Trobe University. Hang in there. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3 Triple R. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go. On the line with us now is Dr. Catherine Sewell from La Trobe University and the Florey Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. Good morning, Catherine. How are you going? Hi, Dr. Shane. I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. Now, the last time uh, I had any interaction with you, you were delivering a poster at La Trobe University, and I was the judge of all these posters, and, and I didn't know who you were, but you won. <laughs> Your poster was good. And back then, you were just a PhD student. Now, I know you haven't conferred, but you've been given the tick from the reviewers, so it is doctor now, right? Yeah, that's right. First time I've um, heard that official title, so that's exciting, and thank you. I um, resubmitted my thesis with minor amendments following feedback just at the end of last week. So the degree itself is yet to be conferred, but it's completed. Fantastic. Well, step one has been called doctor on this show. Step two is updating your credit cards, and <laughs> step three is getting a postdoc position, which I, you know, that's the hard part. The other parts are, are easy. Now, you work in an area which is like incredibly important and, and super interesting, I think, for a lot of people, and that's around stroke. First of all, give us an idea. How many, how many people in Australia end up you know, having a stroke at some stage during their life? Do we have a feel for that number? Yeah, absolutely. Um, stroke is a major health problem in Australia and worldwide. In 2020, there was an estimated 27,000 cases of first ever stroke and 8,000 deaths. So um, at any one time, approximately half a, million of, half a million Australians are living with stroke and this number is expected to increase. Yeah. And what, what's happening in the brain when we have a stroke? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. So stroke is classified as a cerebrovascular disease and it occurs when an artery in the brain is either occluded or ruptures, causing disruption to the brain's blood supply. Mm. I, I remember um, talking to colleagues at, at the Flory over the years um, about this and the excitement when we first produced the stroke ambulance. And correct me if I'm wrong, but when you have a stroke, you need one of two types of medicines. And if you get the wrong one, it will kill you. If you get the right one, it will save you. And you need a, need a scan to work that out. Is that right? Am I right there? Yeah, I don't have too much knowledge in that area, but I know, yeah, um, ambulance personnel and doctors need to be incredibly precise and mm. knowledgeable in the acute treatment that they provide. Um, and, yeah, Melbourne was one of the first places who had uh, mobile stroke units. Yeah. Um, the fantastic way of providing much-needed acute support. Yeah, amazing stuff. Now, of course, you don't work in that, that particular area. You work in the area of, of sort of mental health and what's happening with people post-stroke. Obviously, there's a range of issues here. One is, first of all, the, the there is often cognitive damage or decline. How how significant is that? And how I mean, how detectable is that? I mean, I think we've all got an image of someone who has some structural changes to their face and various things. But in terms of cognition, what sort of things do we see? Yeah, absolutely. And stroke was historically and sometimes still is considered a condition that causes more physical and mm. functional impairments. But we know now that it also causes cognitive, as you said, and psychological deficits, which can be much more difficult to detect and then after identification to treat and to include in rehab um, and also the conventional outcome measures that we use to evaluate someone's recovery after stroke is still geared towards, they're much more still geared towards the physical um, impairments. But sometimes... Um, well, it, uh, people with stroke have varying degrees of impairments, um, but we certainly see changes in mood, so things like anxiety, grief, fatigue, and also in cognition or mental processes like attention, memory, and, and other mental functions. Yeah, now there's a whole other stuff there I want to unpack with you because I know, like having had family members who've over the years had heart attacks, there's often mood changes post-survival of that and and in fact i think doctors are quite good at well some doctors doctors that you know my family's been involved with have been quite good at indicating to family members that those mood changes may be there is this kind of a, a, a newer scenario with stroke um with regards to those mood changes and what does that look like yeah, I think absolutely. It's it's new and a lot happens after stroke and for varying um, degrees to different people and it's difficult to know what to focus on. Um, and I think sometimes the presence of depression, which is uh, primarily my focus of, of research, can be difficult to detect and can be quite subtle. And when 
um, uh, stroke survivors in hospital after experiencing a stroke, the focus can mainly be on on the physical impairment impairments. And so, yeah, it's difficult to to take the time mm. and to to focus on on the other impairments, the cognitive and and mental health related ones too. And they can be t- difficult. Uh, difficult to, I guess, tease apart from um, like a normal reaction to a catastrophic health event like stroke. So it would be usual to expect someone to experience anxiety, confusion, uncertainty or grief. So it's difficult to disentangle sometimes the psychological sequelae from um, a a normal health reaction. Mm. And that's what I was going to ask you, like in, in terms of the timing, what does this look like? Because Things like depression can be caused by structural changes in in our brain as as well as the circumstances we're in and chemical imbalances, a whole suite of things. Do we we have a feel with regards to stroke what that is or is it all of the above? Yeah, that's right. I think it's a combination of both. So the infarct to the brain, the injury could cause... um, Uh, symptoms of depression and other psychological uh, consequences but also it could be the um, psychological um, or psychosocial implications so a loss of sense of self loss of identity loss of independence and and the changes um, Mm. from that side of things and it it is difficult to work and I think that's why at the moment a lot of screening for depression after stroke happens in the hospital in the acute phase but some of um, our work is encouraging uh, screening to happen beyond the acute phase and along the continuum of care. So when a stroke survivor is discharged and returns home and then even years later, depression might become um, more notable and more significant and important to to identify and treat then at the latter stages. Yeah, and, and you've been looking at that that connectivity with recovery because I suppose stroke recovery, you know, my understanding of it and sadly have some family experience again with this is that it is prolonged. It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and can be exhausting and can be, you know, in, in some regards futile as well. It doesn't always, doesn't always work and there's varying degrees of success. But how does that sort of depressive episode sort of feature in that? And presumably that means we have to make sure that the mental health is, is integral to that sort of post-stroke recovery period and, and period of, of, of healthcare work. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And it differs from, say, a broken arm, which might be a little bit more simple in terms of detecting and then treating. Um, Depression can, the onset of depression after stroke can occur quite quickly, but it can also occur months after the onset of stroke. And because of that variable and dynamic trajectory, it's important to, I guess, look out for it and be aware of it and on the part of the clinicians or the treating practitioners, but also the stroke survivor themselves and their carers and families, because it certainly can change in um, frequency and severity of symptoms over time. And yeah, part of my research also looked at um, the trajectory of depression over time and its impact on uh, recovery but recovery is perceived by the patient versus what the clinician might rate someone, a stroke survivor's recovery might be and how that can differ a bit dependent upon the presence of uh, depressive symptoms or other mood or cognitive um, impairments. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, how we, how we do those assessments, because surely it's got to be very bespoke to the individual and what their life involves. So depending on what sort of job you have or what sort of work you do, you know, your perception of your recovery might be very different to a clinician's. I mean, you may get the majority of your motor function back, but your ability to, you know, like if it was me, for example, my ability to remember names, um, well, to be fair, it's not great coming out of the gate, but, you know, if that was something that was really impaired for me, mm-hmm. then that would that would actually be a problem for my work. And, and although I might be physically completely back to normal or, you know, largely back to normal, those sorts of things would cause severe, you know, mental health issues down the track. And do, do we have a good feel for that at the moment? Is that being done in clinical care where it's very bespoke towards the individual's lifestyle? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're getting better at it, um, ensuring that we're providing patient or person, sorry, centred care uh, is incredibly important. Uh, A lot of our measures in stroke rehab are still focused on physical impairments. um, But of course, we know that um, deficits extend beyond physical functioning. And I think also that's why important. it's important to have, and we do have clinicians that continue to work with stroke survivors and clients in their own home and, and in discharge because sometimes that's when, um, you know, their interpretation of the problems or, or what's causing them um, to not reach their goals uh, can, can really become quite clear. Um, yeah. Yeah. And 
what about the families? Presumably, you know, the, I mean, they become the the carers for a while. Then they're they're the sort of the, the best frontline monitors of what's going on. How how sort of engaged do we have them? And does that need to change? Do they need different sort of support structures? Yeah, it's important to have the family engaged and and any person in a caring role. And and I do think um, in clinical practice we do that quite well. It is part of uh, per, sorry person centred care, which is at the forefront of of um, our provision of of rehab and and services. I think it looks different for every individual. Um, but yeah, it's it's, mm. it's definitely a pivotal part of, of the provision of care, and and not only in the hospital, but once uh, a patient is discharged home. Yep, no, sounds good. Now, Catherine, what's next for for you um, post the PhD? What's coming up? Uh, I'm not sure. I think when you do a PhD, as I'm sure many people would know, uh, sometimes you set out to answer a question and you're left with just more questions. So <laughs> I'm excited by the opportunity to uh, hopefully undertake a, a postdoc position or, or something in, in academia and research. There's yeah, so much great work being done and uh, it would be great to, to continue in the area. Yep, that sounds good. And look, I think um, stroke is an area, you know, we've been lucky with Latrobe Uni and, and in particular with the Flory Institute um, where there is incredible leadership of, of research there and so many great things coming out of, of those institutions here in Victoria in terms of, you know, our capacity to deal with stroke more effectively. It's it's amazing to me when you when you think about just how much we can do to prevent damage if we get to patients fast enough. And I think that's a it's a real message for those in government to make sure all those resources are properly funded to make sure that we can, you know, get to stroke patients before it's problematic. But um, as you say, the recovery is not just physical, it's also about the, the mental health and that's, you know, that impairs the physical if if it's if it's not done well. So, good luck, uh, Doctor Catherine Sewell. Um, congratulations again on finishing your PhD, and um, hopefully we will you know see you somewhere around about in your postdoc doing more great work. Thanks for chatting to us today on Triple R. Absolutely, thanks, thanks, Doctor Shane. Bye. Folks, that was uh, newly minted Dr. Catherine Sewell from La Trobe University and the Flory Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. We're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in, uh, sorry, some station announcements. No more music. We're done. We're going to promote some good stuff that's happening around the city. That's what we're doing now. We'll be back in a moment. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Now, welcome back, everybody. I'm Stanagogo. We are speaking now with Dr. James Rule. He is the Curatorial Research Assistant of Paleontology at Museums Victoria. Good morning, James. How are we going? Good, thanks, Shane. How are you? Good. Now, I'm probably not as excited as you are, though, because you guys have got this whopping big, amazing new exhibit coming in, a pretty much complete Triceratops um, skeleton. Tell us a bit about what you've got. Yep. So the Triceratops skeleton that Melbourne Museum has coming on next Saturday is 85% complete. Um, So it's 67 million years old and it's from Montana. And like you mentioned, it's one of the most complete Triceratops specimens ever discovered, which is absolutely amazing um, find for science. Yeah, in terms of, um, like, when we say 85% complete, what, what's sort of typical? You know, if I go to some of the great museums of the world, what am I going to find? You know, 40%? Is it just a thigh bone and everyone just guessed from that point forward? Or what, what do we normally see? Oh, uh, well, it's usually a bit all over the place. Um, some animals on display can be as little as like 10 or 20 percent um, because most fossils that we find out in the field are not the amazing, beautiful skeletons we see on display. Mm. A lot of the time those are casts, so they're replicas. Um, when Usually when you find a fossil out in the field, it might be a bone if you're lucky, maybe a few. Um, so finding a almost entire skeleton is an extremely rare um, occurrence. Yeah. Am I allowed to ask what a skeleton like this is, is worth? I mean, 85% is extraordinary. Um, well, the museum um, purchased it for $3 million with the help of the um, state government. 
Um, so essentially that is um, including just the amazing nature of the specimen, but also the amount of work and effort and preparation it takes to prepare it and get it ready for display. I must admit, it sounds like a big number, but I have to say $3 million sounds like an absolute bargain for an 85% complete, what is it, 67 million-year-old Triceratops skeleton? How old is it? Ah, uh, yeah, 67 million-year-old skeleton. And um, yeah... Um, pretty much like the ability to get this um, specimen in a collection is the most important thing from the scientific perspective. Like usually whenever fossils go up to sale um, in other countries like the US, they don't end up in a museum to mm. be able to obtain this for a museum where it can be accessed by the public and scientists is just a remarkable achievement. Yeah, I think that, that was one of the things I was going to ask you about because you, you, have, you have people, you know, to be fair, we've heard about this in the pandemic who, you know, keeping tigers, all sorts of stuff in their private collections. Um, $3 million for one of these skeletons, not a lot of money for, you know, certain rich richies around the world. Um, but, you know, great, put it in their back den and no one ever looks at it. But to have it in, in Melbourne in the museum... Tell us about what that's going to look like. Are you guys just dumping it in the foyer and saying, da-da, there it is, be amazed, or is it is it part of a much larger exhibit? Um, so a little bit of both. So essentially part of the exhibit is going to be about recreating the environment that Triceratops lives because a lot of museums, they just like have the specimen on display and there's not much else, maybe mm. a panel. But we want to teach people about what type of animal Triceratops was, because this is often lost with dinosaur displays. So there's a lot of 3D virtual interactive stuff to do with the Triceratops' environment. Then we've got the Triceratops in a room with plenty of room for everyone to um, safely um, observe it and marvel at it. And we've also got lots of 3D interactives about the biology of Triceratops, so essentially how the animal worked. And then we've got a little bit about the animals that shared and lived in this environment, how it went extinct, and um, what that means for today, for the future of our living dinosaurs. Yeah, look, it's it's fascinating. I, I know your, your good colleague Bridget there, who sets up these these interviews from museum. In in the information she she sent me, it said that the the bones alone weigh about a thousand kilograms. That. That sounds like a very big number. I mean, I know these things were, were huge, but just the bones, a 1,000 kilograms. Do we have an idea of how much it would have weighed in total, the whole animal? Um, in total, so in life. Um, so this is including not just the bones, but all the um, you know organs, all the skin, all the muscles. It probably will have weighed anywhere between 6 to 12 tonnes. Um, so the fossils... Um, do weigh 1,000 kilograms. This is also packing on a lot of weight that occurred because of fossilization, so turning the bones into rocks. So in life, they would have weighed probably a little bit less. Mm. But yeah, definitely believe the 1,000 tons figure after having to <laughs> handle these bones and um, manipulate them and turn them around. It was quite a big team effort. Yeah, I was going to say, how does that work? Like, do, do all the bones get shipped out in a little bit of you know, bubble wrap individually and then you guys are left with the most ridiculous puzzle and and whoever it came from sent out some experts to help you put it back together like how does how does that process of putting it in place actually work um so it was very complicated and very um meticulously organized as well so all the bones were placed into boxes and all safely packed and stored and padded so they weren't damaged on the flight to melbourne and then they were individually unpacked. And as we did, we reported the condition of the bones. We um, made repairs when we needed to be. We basically got ready for the display, but also catalogued them. So one of the big questions that you usually have is, we know we've got like 85% of the skeleton, but what bones do we have? Um, what bones are we missing? So there is a lot of careful, um, meticulously organized work into unpacking the specimen and getting it into the museum before we even begin to put it together. Yeah, it's cool stuff. And in terms of um, the location within the museum building, where, where you guys, where did you put it? Um, so we put it in the gallery that used to house Wild. So oh. Wild, the um, museum's taxidermy gallery, the hall with all these stuffed animals. So um, that's been taken down now. And we, because it's a large space, we put the Triceratops in there. So there's plenty of space for you to marvel at it. Yeah, that's a great dedicated room, I think, for that. I mean, I think some people will miss the old, you know, as I used to call it, the stuffed animals exhibit. Um, but, you know, it was such a white space too. It was so bright that that whole room was very bright. But it's such a good location for such an iconic 
um, you know, display that you guys have. And, and this is permanent for the museum, right? This isn't a traveling exhibit. You guys own it. Permanent will be there forever. Uh, yep. So this is a permanent exhibit. So um, don't worry if you can't get in within the next few weeks. It will still be there for quite a long time. And this is part of the museum's Victoria's collection as well. So not only is this an exhibit, this is an object that the museum has a responsibility to care for for generations to come. So it's mm. absolutely not going anywhere. In, in terms of um, the the actual you know, animal itself and so forth. I mean, one of the things that I suspect some people are not aware of is that the museum does actually do a huge amount of research on top of just displaying the things that it has. Will this become part of the sort of ongoing research programs at Museum Victoria as well? Um, it absolutely will be. So one of the key things we wanted to do, as well as taking care of the fossil and putting it on display, is we wanted to collect a lot of scientific data because obviously it'll be a bit hard to do so once it's up on display. So we spent a lot of time measuring the bones, photographing them, 3D scanning. So now we have pretty much most of the data that we shall need and any other scientists around the world will need in order to do this research. Yeah, look, that sounds great. I mean, it's one of the things I think a lot of people forget is we have so many amazing samples and so forth, often in basement boxes and so forth that you guys have that, you know, there's research going on there that a lot of people can access from around the world, which is which is pretty cool. James, thanks so much for telling us all about the new exhibit. Um, my understanding is it opens next Saturday or this coming Saturday. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. Excellent. So people can get along. It'll be there forever, folks. Um, 67 years, million years in the making, but we're going to keep it there for a long time. Thanks, thanks, James. Um, good luck with uh, that. I hope it goes really well. I'm sure. Um, I'm sure it will. I mean, it's sort of. It, to me, it's you know just hearing the completeness of that um, that structure is phenomenal. I don't think I've never seen a dinosaur that complete in my life. So, you know, looking forward to getting along and seeing that. Thanks for chatting today. Yep, no problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks, James. Folks, that was Dr. James Rule, Curatorial Research Assistant of Paleontology at uh, the Museum's Victoria. And that new exhibit there um, opening up on Saturday, if you want to get along and have a look at it, it sounds really cool. We've been waiting a while for that. I heard when they first bought it and it was like, whoa, that sounds uh, awesome. I'm a big, you know, you guys know I'm a big dinosaur sucker. Anyway, we're going to take some uh, time now for some important station announcements and we'll be back in just a moment, folks. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Yeah, you're listening to Einstein and Gogo. It's a science show. If you've been listening to 44 minutes and you haven't worked that out, send me a tweet. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> that could be a problem. Uh, but right now we're going to hand over to Dr. Ray. He's got something for us. Yeah, Dr. Shane, this, um, this story I, I saw in, in science, there was a great perspective on it. And and over the years, I've, I've talked about bees, not because I have a, a background in bees. I'm not allergic to them that I know of. Um, but I, I just find them a very spe- fascinating insect. They're, I mean, because they're highly specialized. Mm. They feed almost exclusively on nectar and pollen from flowers. So they're, they have an amazing role both in nature and society for pollination of wild plants and crops. Um, also, they're, they're an incredibly social species of insects. Uh, they're able to communicate their, their ability to learn and orientate themselves is just fascinating. Um, and and, and this, this story is, is actually about the effects, anthropogenic influences on bee foraging. So the effects of people uh, on bee foraging, and, and particularly foraging, how they go collect their nectar and pollen. So and, hang on, can I just ask a quick climate yeah. person question? And so you mean the presence of humans? Sorry, so that's a great question. So when I say anthropogenic, anthropogenic influences, the presence of humans as well as climate change does play a role in that as well. In okay. fact, I've kind of got four key areas we'll talk about where the presence of human have, humans have come in, and climate change is one of them. Of can, we, can we start saying the infestation of humans? <laughs> I think it covers everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, probably. Is that, well, I, I don't know. At, at some point we were expansion? sharing... Well, yeah, but Relentless it, march? <laughs> at some point we were sharing the world instead yeah, of that's true. dominating that's true. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So more recent in- infection. Yeah. Um, so one other thing to keep in mind about bees is we hear about honeybees, and we hear about bumblebees, which, by the way, are not even native to Australia. Um, but there's like twenty thousand different species of bees globally. Yeah. There's about four thousand different species in the U.S., and there's about two thousand species native to Australia. And um, 
And, and, and I just want to take a second to talk about just the different kinds of bees because it matters when you think about how they forage. So, you know, in Australia, we have the stingless bee, which is actually our native honeybee, which isn't indigenous to Victoria, but further north. Our biggest bee is the yellow and black carpenter bee. There's also the green carpenter bee, the reed bee, the blue banded bee, which may be my personal favorite just in appearance. I didn't, I found this one out, the teddy bear bee. It is adorable. It's quite hairy. Uh, the leaf cutter bee, resin bee, and, and you mast bees. But you can go on, on on the types of bees, but also they live in different social structures. We think of the honeybee, big hive. They they dance to communicate. They've got a lot of ways to communicate, uh, and that has some real advantages in foraging. We've got a lot of bees that are solitary, that live on their own. They brood on their own. Mm. They live in single nests, and how they forage can be very different. A honeybee range can be very big for foraging, whereas some solitary bees might have a range of 100 meters. Mm. And, and so if you think about how their ranges work, and how close flowers are and how accessible flowers are, that really affects how they forage. And, and so when we think about how people have impacted that, um, not on purpose. Some of it's inadvertent. Some of it's naturally going to happen because of the, how we use the world as well. Um, you can think of it in kind of four segments. Habitat fragmentation, fragmentation, which a lot of that comes from agriculture, but also building cities. Um, exposure to pesticides. Uh, exposure to pollutants, different than pesticides, and climate change. Now, we're going to talk about this for bees. As it turns out, it's true for a lot of different fauna. It's even some of this is true for people. Um, so there, there's some interesting uh, analogies there. But um, in agriculture, for looking at habitat, the, the thing that I hadn't really contemplated was that about 80% of our crops are wheat, rice, and corn and cereals. And what's interesting about those crops is they're wind-pollinated. fertilized, uh, wind pollinated. So wind will blow the pollen around, so you don't need bees for those crops. And that's fine. Bees aren't interested in them either. But as we tend to grow really large fields, um, very large fields, particularly this is in the States in the grain belt, but our grain belt as well, you start to take out large swaths of land where there's virtually no flowers. Mm. And, yep. and so you have ranges where, you know, if bees were there before or they're trying to pollinate on the marginal flowers that are on the, the marginal regions beside the fields, they're traveling really large distances. You know, there's, there's another place we grow land like that where sometimes we don't have a lot of flowers. It's golf courses. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and, yep. and so those can affect foraging because you've got to go farther. Um, that's fine. Bees probably will, will tend not to go around those areas. But you think, oh, well, we've got canola, sunflower, fruits and veggies, all florals. Bees can pollinate there. That's a win-win for us and them. And you think that's great. And it is, except a lot of times because of how crops are growing, the flowering isn't throughout the year. Mm. It's like this huge glut. Mm. And, and honeybees and bees that live in hives that can you know, make honey and bee bread can kind of store that glut. Sometimes it's as short as three weeks. Or honeybees in particular, they can dance, they communicate, they can bring a lot of foragers to bear at once. And so some bees are optimized for these kind of fast blooming. But a lot of, a lot of bees look to forage over time. And so that's a, a different thing that, that, that agriculture doesn't really provide. And, and what's interesting about this is in, in terms of both farmed crops and wildflowers, and our, our general keeping our flora and fauna up, um, diversity in pollinator has been shown to be the thing that's the healthiest. Hmm. So lots of different bees. And I didn't know this, but, you know, I thought the honeybee, like the European honeybee, they, that, I mean, they drive it around in hives to pollinate orchards. I thought it's the honeybee of choice. It's the bee of choice. As it turns out, for example, in the States, the blue banded mason bee, oh, sorry, the blue, the blue orchard mason bee is actually way better pollinating fruit. Hmm. And by the way, do you know why it's called a mason bee? This is great. There's a whole class Does it of wax stuff. No, no, no. There's a whole class of bees that build mud housing, <laughs> and they're called masons because they build them up. I, I was having fun with this story. Anyway, <laughs> um, so there, there's a lot of different breakdowns about how you affect biodiversity ultimately affects foraging and how far bees have to forage. And the further they have to fly, the t more tired they can get. But the other thing is, though, bees have amazing memories, orientation skills, location skills, and navigation, which is how they're able to navigate some of the things that are challenges in agriculture. Hmm. But that brings us to our next challenge about pesticides and chemicals. Now, we know pesticides will kill insects. That's what they're there for. And, 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 and that's fine. But most regulatory tests, when they think about bees, tend to think about, oh, does it, does it kill the bee? But apparently the challenges now, there's been a lot of research going into this. The challenges around bees and pesticides are actually sublethal exposure. 
And so you're kind of talking of the one to 20 parts per million. Um, and, and so pesticides are so prevalent in bees. In a great deal of honey, you will find up to 10 different pesticides and insecticides in the honey in rather complex combinations, um, which is an interesting thing about when you're eating honey. Um, but sublethal effects in bees actually impact navigation, memory, and learning. And, and, and so the implication is you end up with bees that get lost. Mm. And if they're having to forage farther <clears throat> yep. and they get lost, when bees get lost, suddenly you run out of foragers. Um, bees have to – or they, their memory problems may yeah. be not as efficient or they have to go on more foraging. And so that can wear bees down. And so sometimes you can see hives that get worn down because of mem- for forgetful bees or bees getting lost, which I kind of went, oh, that, that's a different way to look at the impact of pesticides. And a lot of that has come out of a lot of concerted research in trying to understand that. Mm. Um, and, and so we think, okay, well, pesticides are something we, we know that we have. And, and maybe understanding that there are, are mitigation strategies about where you use pesticides uh, and, the, and the frequency can also help as well. Um, but we're still discovering that. And there's still science that needs to be done. Pesticides, like most products, are formulated, and they have inert ingredients, right? If you ever look on your toothpaste, it says active ingredient. But that's a really small amount of what's in your toothpaste. There's all the other things they put in. And by the way, folks, did you know your toothpaste foams because you put soap in it? <laughs> I mean, you're literally washing your mouth out with soap. You don't need the yeah. foam to clean your teeth. Anyway, back to bees. Um, there are inert components or, um, that are called inert particularly some of the surfactants in these pesticides, which are also toxic to bees. So even trying to understand how bees respond to pesticides. Would you say all bees? Thinking about all of your different species of bees. Has the research gone that deep No, that's an excellent point. We really know a lot more about honeybees and and, and bumblebees. In fact, one of the things that that came through this was in in trying to look at even some of the mitigation strategies, uh, one of the things I still said scientifically is, we don't really understand what many bees eat past honeybees and bumblebees, like what are great foods for them, what are great flowers for them. Um, and, mm. and, and so this is, this is varied. I mean, we've got 2,000 species of bees, and most of it's around honeybees and, and bumblebees. So the last two areas I just want to touch on quickly. Um, pollutants are, I mean, everyone's impacted by air pollution. Uh, and, and it's natural, you know, particularly particulate pollution from diesel engines and cars. You know, we know we breathe that in. That's not great for us. It's not great for bees. It ends up in the honey as well. Um, and uh, but the one things I didn't re- there were two things I didn't realize was um, bees have been shown to get confused by turbulence from traffic and not go towards foraging areas because of just the the, the extra air swirling that is an interference. And diesel engines, you know, that you know, if I smell diesel engines, I know it affects my sense of smell and how I enjoy the f- if I can smell flowers. Well, it does that for bees too, and it matters more for bees because they need to find them. Um, and, and so there's impacts there. And, and then the final one was, was climate change. And climate change is, is one we're all in a bucket together. And, and certainly I, I remember doing stories about like a bumblebees, um, which have incredibly long tongues, like up to eight millimeters, are starting to get some natural selection in them because different flowers are blooming in alpine regions. And so bumblebees with shorter tongues are, have no shorter tongues than they did before. But one of the, the biggest things about climate change, this too, is getting warmer. And this is something you have to think about about bees. Bumblebees in particular, they're quite furry. It's kind of like they have little fur coats on. Too hot. Too hot. Yeah. Does much better in the cold. Um, and the other one that I didn't realize is that higher CO2 concentrations mean pollen has less protein in it. Right. I mean, for me, pollen is what sets off my allergies. I didn't really think of it as a protein source. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's all not not all, all bad news. Some of the agricultural challenges um, can be mitigated if we think about different approaches to farming, um, maybe pro- planting legume cover crops because then you get a little bit more flowering. Uh, and there's a lot more about regenerative farming practices that can impact bees. A lot of times when people do it on a local level, they have a great impact. It's just the global mm-hmm. decline. But um, what I didn't realize was urban environments, we can do a lot more. That um, flower diversity is really critical. So if you plant flower, um, bee-friendly urban green spaces and flower gardens, those bloom at different times. There's a lot more of them. There's a lot of variety. And, and this is something that they actually think honeybees would actually thrive in. Um, mm. We're not too worried about bumblebees. Um, but you can also look at, and France did this, they banned pesticides in urban environments because that helps biodiversity and, and helps bees as well. And, and so to, to, if you're curious about that, because I actually looked it up, you know, what are great flowering plants for bees for Australia? 
And, uh, and, and so, actually, if you want to plant a, a bee-friendly garden, I at least found AussieBee.com, which had an interesting page about it. <laughs> but, you know, spider flower, lavender, tea tree, honey myrtle, uh, even daisies, bottle brush, butterfly bush, and, and eucalypts are all great mm. for bees. And, and I thought about the number of times I've been in gardens, and my wife has looked at me funny because I've just stopped at the lavender and watch the different bees because yeah. the, the further yeah. out you get, you're like, okay, honeybee, honeybee. Ooh, there's a blue-banded bee. And just watching them for quite a while because they're just fascinating yeah. to me. But um, So there are things we can do, particularly in urban environments. And, and that can also affect urban planning about how you think about green spaces. Um, you know, I remember walking through our neighborhood going, gosh, why are they putting flowers? People are actually putting flower boxes out on the on the green space between the streets and you think, oh, well, you know, normally it's just trees and they come mow the grass. But that little bit of effort in mm. starting to look at flowering diversity, uh, keeping flowers around can actually really affect bee diversity uh, with us in cities. And so then there's things we can do to help mitigate our impact. Yeah. You think that bees, I feel like bees in an agricultural setting sometimes have a slightly different, um, you know, PR campaign almost than in urban environments. I think yeah. now we realise the plight of the bees is, is intimately tied to our health as well and the, and the planet's health. But I reckon in some communities there might still be a bit of a pushback of a not in my backyard for bees. Yeah. Did you did you come across anything like that? Yeah, well, there was certainly a discussion about urban beekeeping has been one popular thing that's come up. But the article was going on to say it's actually not – that's not necessarily the solution. It's actually environments for the bees. Mm-hmm. That you can care about bees without having to run out and keep a hive on your roof. Uh, yeah. that, that actually just creating wildflowers, uh, flowering environments that are conducive to them actually does a lot more. Also kind of balances that concentration of your neighbor having a hive and always seeing a lot of bees around (laughs) versus when you go to your flowering plants and you'd expect to see them, that's where you'd see them. Well, the other thing, I mean, to me, whenever I plant any sort of vegetables or whatever, I try and put some flowers in there because I want these predator bugs coming in to take care of the other annoying bugs that I don't want in my garden eating all my stuff. So, you know, the more bees, dragonflies, all all these different things that you, you can draw into your garden, you know, the better off you'll be. You know, long, long, you know, over the long term. I, I, I learnt this on Triple R many years ago. A show called Dirty Deeds. Some of our listeners will remember. Um, told me this, and I've never forgotten that. It's amazing what you can <laughs> learn on radio. Um, and I've, I've always done that ever since. And I've had much better crops and so forth as a result of having some diversity in the garden. Not all the one thing all the time. You have all the one thing. You get exactly what you're talking about, Ray. Where you know, oh, they all bloom at exactly the same time of year. Well. That's nice, but it doesn't help uh, all those in- those insects. Don't just sort of you know go into hibernation <laughs> for nine months because your azaleas aren't out. Um, you know you've got to have you've got to have a bit of a mix. So, it's a yeah. dream of mine to see a blue banded bee in our garden. If I do, oh, you'll all hear about it. Yeah, I've planted I, for it, but nothing yet. We have a lot of bats flying over our house, and I have a dream that one will you know hang for a while and just you know just hang out with us but they they just fly around no they fly around i'm not sure why maybe they can see the cats through the window could be something that it could be something in the garden that offends them like the ferns or something who knows folks uh we're almost out of time we're gonna have to hand over to the team from either ray thanks so much for talking about bees always an interesting topic thanks, love Dr. hearing about bees doc Lindon, good to see you in the studio pleasure as always big thank you to our guest today talking about stroke and the amazing new exhibit of a complete i'm just going to call it complete 85 percent at the museum i'm dr shane remember science is everywhere we will chat to you again next sunday hi this is dr shane thanks for listening to the podcast of triple r's einstein agogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world broadcast live on triple r from melbourne australia every sunday hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via einstein agogo's twitter account or facebook page